to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in Tampa Ranch, Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd homicide sergeant bill cannon and with me tonight below me here is retired nypd sergeant and professor at albertus magnus college in new haven connecticut michael geary welcome to the show mike thank you bill and of the other window up top is retired nypd detective and straight out of brooklyn phil grimaldi how you doing tonight phil i'm doing pretty good billy how about you very good. You know, we're supposed to have Jennifer Koffendoffer, and she was here. She had a little bit of technical difficulties. I hope she makes it back into the room because uh, she's a fantastic guest, and uh, we're looking forward to hearing what she has to say about this case. Absolutely. Without further ado, it's been 37 days since this horrific quadruple murder, and we've heard a lot of, you know, theories about it, and we've heard, as I describe people on the broadcast news as talking heads. And I even describe myself as a talking head when I go on TV. People, there's a lot of opinions out there, but we as the general public, we don't know what's going on on the inside of this investigation. And one of the most important things about a homicide investigation is something called victimology. And specifically, if you remember your studies at school, Ology, and here's Jen Koffendorfer. Jen, welcome to the show. Yes. Can you hear me, Jen? <laughs> Jen, can you hear me? She's I can hear her. Me. Well, I'm going to continue. Sadly, so, cannot hear you. You can't hear me. We hear you. Oh. We can hear you. Can you guys hear me? Yes. You can hear me, but yes. I can't hear you. Perfect. But you can listen to us on your phone. And, oh, um, do you have recommendations? To, I'm going to remove you and bring you back in. Hmm. That sometimes helps. Boy. Can you hear now? Sorry, guys. Okay. Maybe if you go completely out and then come back in. She's not hearing you, Phil. Folks, so anyway, we're going to get back to the show. Jennifer's going to have to figure this one out. What we're looking at is victimology, and that's a study of the victim. And what does that entail? That entails a total victim background check. That means her friends, her family, her fellow students, alcohol and drug use, boyfriends, girlfriends, vehicles you own, financial situation, uh, habits, uh, whether you work out, all, all kinds of things that have to do with your personality. And that's the study, the victimology, the study of the victim. And usually nine times out of 10, the information that you garner from the victimology will help solve the case. In this case, it's even more difficult because we have to do four complete victimologies because there's four victims. So is that complicated matters? You bet. We're hearing things uh, about there was potentially stalkers. So far, the uh, Moscow police have not been able to verify that there were any stalkers. However, 
people in the neighborhood are swearing that they were being stalked. So we don't know uh, whether that's true or not. I'll play some video Sorry, later on. I cannot hear you all and I do not know why. Uh, Jen, uh, she Abby can't hear us. Yeah, I know. You got to check her speaker or something. I don't know. Let me see. Could it be? Well, I can't even tell her. Yeah, she can't. Uh, I'll, I'll tell it to. Anyway, I don't. I don't want to destroy the show. No, let, let, let me just make a comment about the victimology. I'm so glad that we're on this topic book tonight, and I think the reason that I'm glad about it is because I'm hearing all different uh, talking heads whether it be on cable news, the local news, whatever, they're coming up with all different scenarios. And I just want to make one thing clear. This to me sounds like a complete and total rage. Uh, a rage took place in that house. I believe that one or two of the victims were targeted. And I also believe that the other two victims were collateral damage. I doubt very highly that someone from the inner circle, when I mean the inner circle, a very close boyfriend, ex-boyfriend, something of that nature, I don't think that that's going to be uh, what's going to wind up being the perpetrator in this case. The reason I say that is I feel too much time has passed. If it was someone very close to the victims, I really believe they would have already been identified as a suspect and arrested. I believe the outer circle, let's say, someone that did know their way around the victim's home or had some connection to the victims. I doubt very highly that this was 100% random, that someone just picked this house. They seem to have known their way around the lay of the, of the, uh, of the home. They were in and they were out with apparently not being stopped or, or spotted. So again, I think the victimology is going to be key at this point, finding out friends, family members, uh, lovers, ex-lovers, things of that nature. And then we have to narrow down on, obviously, the evidence that's recovered from inside the location. Jennifer, uh, I, I'm glad you're here and I'm glad your, your sound is we working. We got it back. What we're, what we're focusing on right now is the victimology because I think uh, we've gotten away from that. Sometimes it seems to me that the media is trying to dictate this investigation, the direction it goes and they're not happy with this. I don't give a shit if they're happy about anything. The police run the investigation. The police, the FBI, and the Idaho State Police. I mean, when you watch these interviews, they show their disdain, like, they, like they're running the investigation. I'm sorry. I'm going on a rant, Jennifer. That's just my personality. <laughs> yeah. uh, would you please comment on victimology? Well, I want to say this. I think it is very important that very early on, and when I say early on, I mean within the first couple of days, they had the FBI there, the behavioral science unit there to specifically uh, outline and detail a, um, a profile of exactly what police should be looking for. And I think the Moscow Police Department uh, made a brilliant move asking uh, BAU to come. And then also involving uh, federal and state officers very early on understanding the magnitude of what they were facing. So I believe that those victim profiles um, that were developed by BAU are going to be very helpful. Uh, I, I can name three cases right off the bat that personally I reached out to um, our behavioral science unit and unbelievable, they matched spot on who ended up being the victim, you know, when you don't have any leads, which is, or not leads, when you do not have a suspect. Uh, that's what you need. 
You know, Jennifer, I think that's a great thing to have behavioral analysis, but they're also, it's not an exacting science. It definitely does help because there's things in this case that homicide investigators uh, rarely see. First of all, most homicide investigators never see a quadruple murder unless it's by gunfire. And that's a hell, hell of a lot different than someone getting killed in, in their home, in their beds with a knife. Uh, Professor Geary, would you like to comment on victimology? Well, um, the vic victimology is an important aspect of the uh, crime because if you can find out fairly uh, quickly uh, what are the behavioral aspects of the four people involved. If it's one, it's much easier. As you say, four complicates things uh, tremendously. But um, to find out information about those four kids that their parents didn't know about, what were their you know habits? What did, what did they smoke? What did they drink? Who do they hang out with? Not everything is known by the parents and maybe, maybe not even one or two close friends. Getting to, uh, getting to know the victims as much as possible. What, who were they like? What did they do? Who did they hang out with? Every possible bit of information you can get to understand your victims will help to lead you possibly to the perpetrator because um, in victimology, there is a relationship in some ways between the victim and the perpetrator. Absolutely. You know, I was, a lot of people are talking about the toxicology coming back and what is that going to tell us about this? And people, you know, with absolutely no evidence at all, at all, they're saying this could have been a drug deal gone bad. And, you know, I don't see that. And that's why we look into the victimology where any of these kids drug users, I don't know, but the toxicology potentially will tell us that the toxicology is going to tell us what we know about almost every college student is in this uh, country. They drink, you know, and they get drunk and they come home. They were and, coming from a bar. So I guess right, they were uh, coming from a bar a and they were point. coming from a party. But, you know, the we spoke about it ad nauseum about the very personal nature of someone killing with a knife. And I think uh, I was reading some of the statistics about methods of murder and 11% of, of all murders are, uh, are caused by someone using a knife. So it is somewhat unusual as compared to other weapons. And it tells us something about the perpetrator. Jen, would you comment on that? Yeah, absolutely. This was a very personal, I know some people don't like to use the word personal because they say, well, that makes it look like the, the victim had an issue and that's what made it personal. I don't mean it that way. How I mean it is the person who perpetrated this crime was angry, was enraged. We have all seen people stabbed. I've seen people stabbed many times and they're not stabbed with the type of ferociousness that occurred in this crime where you see four dead people as a result of the viciousness of the stab wounds and probably also the location of the stab wounds that caused this amount of bleeding to exit the house, you know, exit the caulking and go down the side of the house. You're talking serious arterial bleeds. So I would believe, uh, you know, the neck was attacked, uh, the heart. And uh, we've also heard descriptions now of some of the uh, knife wounds. So clearly, this was ferocious, this was personal, and uh, they uh, weren't gonna leave there without those victims being dead. So again, and again, ad nauseum, does this mean 
someone, and I, I've heard numerous FBI profilers speak upon this, does this mean someone was specifically targeted? Or as uh, I think it was Greg McCrary, who I thought was the most impressive person, uh, former FBI profiler that I've seen on any show so far. And he said, no, it doesn't mean that. It could mean that this person resisted the most. And as a result of resisting the attack, received much more severe wounds than the other. But absent that, it potentially could mean that this person uh, was the target. Phil. Uh, real quick, Bill, you talked about the toxicology. I think the only thing the toxicology is going to tell us at this point is if there was drugs or alcohol in the system of the victims. It's not going to really make a big difference. I mean, if their senses were dull, that could be, uh, you know, uh, some of the reason why they may not have put up a fight. Perhaps they were in a deep sleep when they were attacked. But I don't think that's going to be a big factor in solving this case. As far as uh, what Jennifer just talked about, I was saying it earlier, it's it's a personal of nature because you have to get up close to a person to stab them. It's obviously an intense rage here. I had a triple homicide where one of the victims that was killed, the targeted individual when we found the, the motive out, had a much more severe stab wound pattern than the other two victims who were collateral damage. They were only killed, and this came from the perpetrator's mouth, because they were in the apartment. They had a lot of time. They staged a crime scene. Now, that's a completely different case, but there was specific things in that murder that obviously told us that the mother uh, of the two children was targeted. It turned out to be the son that killed the mother. And there were different things that happened when we went to that crime scene that we were able to read the crime scene and we were able to determine before we had the confessions that the mother was targeted. So again, those are the things that they're going to be looking at. And as far as the inside of that home, there's going to be some trace evidence from the uh, perpetrator in this case. I will almost guarantee that. I've heard earlier today on on one of the talking heads on on uh, cable news saying that they're upset that uh, there's no evidence been found in the apartment. We don't know that. That has not been said, and I doubt very highly that that's true. Uh, I want to just talk about, um, I think we all, well, I'm not going to say all because nothing is ever all. We all, we all can't agree that... Uh, you know, the sun is out when it obviously is. But I want to uh, give a little bit of a profile of who this person is. Again, I would say 80% of the time, by statistics, it's going to be a male. I think in my mind, in this case, I don't think there's any doubt that this is a male. Jennifer, you, well, we all, four for four. So we all agree. I agree on I, that. Go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, I was just saying we can wholeheartedly agree on that. And I also wanted to comment, uh, they have over a hundred submissions that they've submitted to the lab in this case from that house. So we know there's a lot of evidence they have. The biggest problem they're gonna have is this is such a party house with all these people going in and out. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the victims weren't even in the house and there were huge parties held. So it's gonna just be hard, in my opinion, the whole comparison issue. I was talking about early on that they do elimination DNA and elimination fingerprints to separate uh, potential people that had reason to be there prior to this event to people that had no reason. Although we can't say that because this killer could have been in the house as, as a friend or a known person to these victims. And we don't know that. So th what we're hoping is, and I talk about, the smoking gun piece of evidence is commingled blood 
with the victim's blood that's unidentified, and that's your perpetrator. Uh, Professor Geary. Yeah, um, I think the issue of the fact that it was a fairly open kind of party house atmosphere really makes it difficult. Um, if you have, if you're involved with a, a homicide in an apartment or a home where maybe four or five people have access to the home on a regular basis, and you can kind of figure out, you know, who a stranger would be, you can take the uh, elimination prints and you can take a sample of DNA, and it would be anything that stands out as not being a member of the family or a close friend allowed into the home, uh, you could consider them a suspect. In this situation, it's you might have fingerprints that the suspect may have left weeks ago. Uh, fingerprints, if left unattended and not subject to uh, heat and humidity and any kind of you know wiping away, they might last actually several weeks. Um, uh, I, I was, as Phil and I were talking before we began the, the show, uh, we're just com you know, commiserating about, you know, what's the person's motive and, and you know, that, what their training might be. I always like to think about, you know, is it possible that the perpetrator could be someone um, who is fairly close in terms of um, physical distance in the vicinity, that they're not in a, um, from far away, that there actually are someone very local that maybe can walk around in almost like hiding in plain sight, a very young person not some sort of Hannibal Lecter person, just a young man uh, that actually lives right in the neighborhood who might still be just sitting around in that neighborhood and may not have actually drove away. You know, Mike, I had, I had 100% early on in this case said that the perpetrator is what I would refer to as a townie. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's not a the most uh, admirable term, if that's the correct word, but I went to State University, Buffalo State College, and people that went to the SUNY system, the, the folks that lived in the town, they referred to them as townies. Yeah. And I think this guy is a male, uh, a male white, and I think somehow one or two or three of these girls really enraged this guy and somehow enraged him. And this rage he carried around with him, and on this night of November 13th, it was payback time in his mind, which is a psychotic thing, but it was payback time. Billy, I just want to make a quick comment about the crime scene. Now, I think we're all in agreement for a perpetrator to have gone into that location, killed four people with a knife and not have left trace evidence. The only way that could be possible. And even then with a, with a complete Tyvek suit, he would have been spotted in the street coming out of there. Even then, if a, one of the victims touched his face, which a Tyvek suit would cover everything except the face, you could get DNA evidence off of their hands, which were big. So I think it's almost an absolute that some type of evidence from the perpetrator was left at that scene is uh, with regard to the town. Yeah, if there was, if there was resistance, what we would expect to find is DNA under the fingernails of the of resistors, you know, and so far we don't know about that. If there is DNA underneath the fingernails of the people that resisted, we don't know about it. Jennifer? No, uh, we don't know that there is. We know that it's been described that at least uh, two of the victims, I believe, had defensive wounds. But you and I both know, I mean, all of us know that can mean this, that can mm -hmm. mean this. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean fighting. I think the biggest issue here is they were truly ambushed as they slept. And they weren't just asleep on a normal night. They had been out all night. They'd been out until, you know, all hours of the morning. 
at this point. I think that's where the toxicology will at least play a role in understanding the level of intoxication that they were under and how these attacks could occur without more of a resistance, without the two bottom stair, you know, the ladies downstairs hearing anything. We all know how quickly this happens. It's in seconds. And with somebody with that kind of ferociousness attacking, that blade, I think, would have gone clean through. And if it hits a lung, if it hits the esophagus, you know, the eye area, it's over that quick. Jennifer, you know, you're 100% right. And I've heard talking heads on TV say, how could there be no screaming? Well, dude, you have a 12-inch knife stuck into your heart. You're not going to really, uh, you're not going to scream. It's over, you know. And uh, so, right, when we analyze and we don't, we're not privy to the autopsy report. When we work a homicide on the NYPD, we get the entire report. We get everything, how the picture of how and where the person was stabbed. We don't have this. Do the investigators have this? Undoubtedly. So this tells a great deal. I know, you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about is repetitive, but we have to, we're looking for answers, you know. And in this, this case and in this internet world, this social media world we live in, a lot of things have to be investigated that 25 years ago, 30 years ago would have never come to the attention of the investigators. Some of it's good. A lot of it's total horseshit. And they have to waste their time going over this. So, and the, I know, Jen, the FBI has some kind of um, internet tool that they use to separate the, the tips as to what is good and what is uh, potentially nonsense. I don't know what that's called. Maybe you could tell us what that is. Well, we have a tool which is utilized by our analysts. And the interesting thing about this case, which I haven't seen done, maybe the Boston Marathon case, possibly, where you have multiple field offices involved throughout the United States because they had 22,000 cars to look through. And so they ferreted that out by reports to the different field offices, to their analytical group, to go through each of those cars. And, you know, those analysts, this is what they do. They do have special programs to input different information and read out certain words. And uh, they're doing a great job triaging, I have no doubt, so that the boots on the ground can be headed in the right direction. Absolutely. I don't think, you know, sometimes I say in these homicide investigations, more is not always better. And if you have a focused team of investigators, as long as you have enough, you need enough because too little is also just as bad as too many. You know, sometimes they'll throw people, when we used to have a, a huge case in, in Manhattan, they would send detectives from all over the city. And after a while, we couldn't even control the amount of personnel we had there, you know? So it, it's almost better when you have a smaller focused group of people that all know the case. Uh, Professor Mike. Yeah, the, the difficulty with people um, help, want, want, wanting to help is the fact that you're getting a lot, as you say, a lot of chaff and only a little bit of wheat. Um, the Boston Marathon bombing was an exception because the information they got on video was fabulous, was first rate. And they were able to, within probably 24 hours, I think, of going through all that information, were able to identify the Sarnaya brothers, you know, actually see them with their backpack, you know, right there. And that was a wonderful thing. 
But the issue uh, for the police on this case is if you're sending in like a thousand tips over the course of uh, a month or, or however many they actually have, you have to go through as many as you possibly can. Uh, a defense attorney will try to uh, make a lot of hay over the, you know, the reliability evidence that was given, uh, the witnesses that they were, that they were, uh, the police looked at and be able to say, look, you miss, you only went through 10% of the tips. The other 90% you'd even bother going through. And it, it adds an extra burden onto an already burdened police department. Remember, there's four victims. It was bad enough it was one, but you have four. Absolutely. incredible. 10,000 tips right now. How many? Yeah. 10,000. 10, oh, right, so they can't possibly, uh, I think, do a, a, a real good in investigation on every single one of those tips. No. Undoubtedly, many of them, they just have to put aside and say, no, that's not credible. You know, right. people probably even name people that, that you know, I look, I've seen the tips log in homicide cases, and 90, 95% of them are just garbage. That's the French word for garbage, you know? So uh, a lot of times people are calling up on neighbors that they don't like and different mm -hmm. things like that. But I would think in this investigation, since there is a lot of manpower there, the FBI, the state police, the local police, perhaps the main investigators that are following the evidence where it's leading them, and then maybe a separate group that's handling the tips. Obviously, some of the tips are going to have priority if they make sense. Bill, you just pointed that out. Some of them are going to be ridiculous. It's going to be, you know, uh, like I said, neighbors fighting or different things like that. So they're going to have to be able to. And maybe uh, Jen uh, talked about it. They they have uh, the analysts will have some type of a uh, computer program that can figure out what is going to be, uh, you know, going to have meat on the bone and what's going to be something that's completely nonsense. With that in mind, I just want to play this video about uh, there was a white Hyundai Elantra that was abandoned in, in uh, Oregon, Eugene, Oregon. And again, they have to follow this up as they should. But let me, let me just um, play this. Here on Law and Crime, and we have some news to tell you about in the case of the four University of Idaho students who were murdered a little more than a month ago, just over five weeks ago. There is a photo or a group of photos floating around on the internet, and I've received a lot of messages about this. It is a white Hyundai Elantra in this photo and photographs without license plates and front end damage that has been found abandoned on a street corner in Eugene, Oregon. Now we all know that Moscow police have been looking for a white Hyundai Elantra. I reached out to police in Eugene, Oregon, and they told me that they have notified Moscow police about this white Hyundai Elantra. It has no license plates, it appears to be dirty, and also has front-end damage. I reached out to Moscow PD. Uh, a spokesperson there told me they are aware of the vehicle and they are working on it. So uh, this is an interesting bit of information. Obviously, there are 22,000 white Hyundai Elantras between the years of 2011 and 2013 that police are sifting through in the hopes of finding the white Hyundai Elantra that they're looking for. Uh, you may recall just about two weeks ago, Moscow PD put out the call saying that they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra between the years of 2011 and 2013 that was in the immediate area of the crime scene that early morning on November 13th when those four college students, Kaylee Gonsalves, Maddie Mogan, Zana Carnodal, and Ethan Chapin were murdered in their home. 
Police have repeatedly said that the person or persons in that vehicle could have information critical to this investigation. So they really want to talk to those people and have been searching for this vehicle for a couple of weeks. We don't know if the white Hyundai abandoned on that street corner in Eugene is indeed the vehicle. However, we thought we should let you know that uh, police are looking into it, both the Eugene PD and Moscow PD, which is leading this investigation with the assistance of the FBI and Idaho State. So at the very least, they'll have to go check that car out. I would think forensically process it to see if there's blood and fiber evidence. Chances are that that vehicle is stolen. And uh, But if there is physical evidence, blood evidence, trace evidence, then I, obviously they, they should, even though it's a needle in a haystack, 22,000 Hyundai Elantras. What is the chance? But you can't say, oh, what's the chance? You got to go check it out. If that car is stolen, I'd want to go to the location where it was stolen from, see if there's video cameras, perhaps if the perpetrator of this uh, quadruple homicide uh, was responsible for stealing that car, then you'd have some type of a video of them. Obviously, a lot of other things. You want to make a connection between that vehicle, where it's located, and you want to uh, have some type of a connection to the victims or in the area where the victims were killed. Obviously, they're going to have to follow that up, and I'm sure it's already been done. Absolutely. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're in the right place, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button. It's free. Give us a thumbs up and ring that bell. If you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And if you see the folks with the green font, they're part of our YouTube family. And as much as they love us, we love them more, <laughs> if that's possible. But uh you know, so so much about this case is, I, I would say, for, for this town and this small police department, and I'm not in any way disparaging them, but it's it's uncharted territory. It's the first. I think their, their last homicide in Mo Moscow, Idaho, was seven years ago. And that you can't make light of that. You know, I, I said a couple of times on other broadcasts that Policing and law enforcement is one of the only professions that 70 to 80 percent of your training is on the job. You actually take the job with no experience and people teach you how to do it. Professor Geary, you want to comment on that? Yeah. In, uh, in a case like this with a small town, if it was a single homicide and they haven't had one in seven years, they could probably handle that without a lot of you know, manpower assistance from anyone else. With, a, with this kind of homicide with four victims, yeah, they, they obviously, thankfully, reached out immediately. Um, and in a small town, the police officers who are first on the scene, as you know, we've all been there, um, they're critical to preserving that crime scene as best you possibly can. And that's where, as you talk about, experience comes in handy. When you've gone to a number of homicides as a patrol officer, as a patrol sergeant, and then you later on in your careers, you go on as a detective, you know what's happened before that, what what the patrol officers are looking for, what they have done, what the patrol sergeant has done. In this kind of case, you might have officers, this might be the first time, and, and again, not to disparage anybody, this might be the first time they've actually seen an actual homicide, um, you know, uh, crime scene. Uh, and at that point, they might not actually know what to do because no one's actually taught them 
And that makes it very difficult because then as you come in as an investigator, you know, an hour later, you're not exactly sure what protocols they have followed. Well, Absolutely. You know, Jennifer, I just wanted to uh, uh, frame a question toward you. The FBI is famous for being tight-lipped. And I think they brought that to this investigation. I think in this investigation, that is the way to go. I think you got to withhold a lot of information, but it's causing a lot of frustration with both the families of the victims and with the public. Would you uh, comment on that? It's causing so much frustration, but it's it's actually a little bit, I don't know how else to say it, but bothersome to me. Uh, I It, it um, amazes me that people think that they're entitled to know what's going on in this case. Um, they're really not. The police, their allegiance are to the victims. Uh, that is their allegiance to solve this case and then to also obviously the local police to keep that community safe because there is a murderer on the loose. Um, but I, I so embrace all the sleuths out there and all the people interested in this case because but for them, uh, in the case of Gabby Petito, as an example, it might never have been solved uh, because they keep the information out on social media, mainstream media. They keep the interest going and the different theories going. And I think that that is, you know, so important. So it's kind of a double edged sword, but it's it's important uh, that this case stay out there because as you all know, there's so many people who don't even know about this case still. Only crime buffs, newsies, we know about it. But uh, your average Joe out there, and, and I know this because I was just with a group of, of you know, kind of average, what, about two of them even knew anything about it. And they were saying, now what happened over in Idaho? Right. Uh, you know, everybody doesn't know about it and we need to keep the word out. You know, Jen, I, I think you hit it on the head. That's a double-edged sword. I think you have to be skilled as a department in what to release, how much to release. And I think you should play the media like they're a, a Stradivarius violin because the media can be your very best friend and your very best enemy. And once you realize that, but skilled departments, large departments are skilled. In New York, the press is so powerful. And in my opinion, the NYPD gives way too much information to them. Uh, I agree. I have compromised cases with what they give these guys. You know, I had one time was told uh, we had uh, three perpetrators and a murder identified. And DCPI called me that morning and said and asked me how the case was going. I, good. I said, good. We, uh, we, uh, we're going out to get all three of them. We have their names. And they said, yes. I go, what do you mean, yes? He says, what's their names? I said, I'm not giving it to you. And this little weasel detective hands the phone to an inspector who gets on the phone and starts screaming at me about, who are you to withhold them? Blah, 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 blah. I said, oh, I thought real fast. And I said, a, a chief who outranked him told me not to tell you. <laughs> I made that up, I made that up on the spot with my skills, you know, my, my, my bullshit. I've, I've involved higher ranks in my time on the job as well when I met resistance. But listen, the obligation of the investigators in any homicide 
regard to the family, the obligation is, listen, you want to keep them in the loop. You want to keep them in a friendly manner, but you can't tell them everything. Cause again, a family member could go talk to people in the news or talk to me- people in the media or just say it to general friends or relatives and it gets out there. And we would not want to compromise critical information on any case that might stymie a a prosecution down the line. So again, uh, Bill, you talked about it many times. There was a case where uh, the Night Stalker wore a specific pair of shoes he wore and he left a nice footprint. It was uh, uh, given out to the media and he threw the shoes away. So again, we don't want anything like that. There needs to be a liaison. I've called for this early on between the family and the police department, someone that both parties are going to trust, maybe a lawyer, and they could, you know, kind of like balance it out and Listen, the family needs to, I get it, they're frustrated, they lost their children, can't even imagine what they're going through, but we all have to stay on the same page. That's the key. Everyone regarding the families and law enforcement has to be on the same page. Well, Phil, with that in mind, uh, the family did hire a lawyer and he went on News Nation the other night with uh, Chris no Cuomo. Good. And I'm going to play a little bit of this. And well, Chris Cuomo, he doesn't look the same on, on News Nation as he looked on CNN. On Idaho, before the break, we saw exclusive video of the house where the four victims in the Idaho murder case lived. And now we've got the full video where two of the victims, Kaylee and Maddie, were walking with the infamous guy in a hoodie they call Adam. I guess technically it's not fair to call him infamous, but the guy in the hoodie that they say has been cleared, we don't understand why. Here to help us figure this out is Kaylee Gonzalez. You know something? He puts a lot of editorial remarks in his comments. He did that in, in two sentences. He said, infamous, and then he said, in Adam, we don't know why he's... Well, you don't, you're not entitled to that. You're a journalist. No one has to tell you anything. Family attorney, Shannon Gray. Counselor, thank you for being back. Thanks for having us. Uh, let me play this new piece of video. Now, do you do you think they're talking about the guy they're walking with or they're talking about somebody else named Adam and they're referring to some conversation with that guy? Right. We had seen the video. uh, The family had seen the video over a week ago, probably. Um, That appears to be video that was before the food cart video that came out. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, The person they're walking with is the same person, I think, that was at the food court behind them at the food court. Um, and Adam, I believe, was just the way that I understand it. Adam is just a bartender uh, that at uh, the corner bar that uh, where they had right. just been. So I think it's pretty. So that was just some extraneous reference. But this guy that enters the picture and he's there with them again at the food truck. He was very quickly cleared. Uh, you're OK with that decision? Well, I mean, the reality of the situation is that you have to try to trust the investigation. You know, they've made a lot of decisions about um uh, potential people that that they might be interested in and clearing them. And and I think we all know that the idea that you might clear someone initially and then maybe gather evidence later on and might revisit that person is always open to an investigation. So um, as of right now, it sounds like they've cleared uh, that individual. Um, and that's really the only information that we have. But good point. Being cleared means nothing. Um, and sometimes it is used as a tactic. You're right. Uh, now that goes to a level of savvy Uh, by investigators. The uh, man running this case is relatively young, is he not? Yeah, it's my understanding that when we went into the meeting on Monday, um, the investigators were there, the two lead investigators, 
Um, one of them identified himself as, a, I think, an officer, Brett Payne, and the other one was an Idaho State Trooper, an officer, Gilbertson. Um, officer Payne is a rookie as of 2020. I think he has two years of experience on the Moscow Police Department. Um, and so after that meeting, you know, we went and I sent an email, I think it was four or five days for, you know, some experience, uh, I think specifically the credentials of Officer Payne, they put him as lead investigator on a quadruple homicide. And? No response. Hey, thank you for Wow, that's pretty concerning that someone with two years as a cop is the lead investor. I, that's very concerning, you know. I mean, it took me years and years to learn the trade, and I, I was a boss, and I, I, I had before I got into homicide, I was in, I was on the job for seventeen years, and I had uh, six or seven years in the detective bureau, and it, it's, it's not a given. It, it, you have to, there's a, a huge learning curve, so. It's the first time I was hearing that that I knew that the person that had the case was uh, inexperienced, but I didn't know that inexperienced. Jen? <laughs> well, I took a little hit on Twitter today <laughs> because, uh, you know, I addressed that point. And my point was, I'm going to say it again, the reality of a case like this is the 60 FBI agents that are assigned and the you know, multitude of analysts in the FBI and the clerical staff. So you know, I don't know the exact number, but I'm guessing in the hundreds are working on this from the FBI. And they're not taking their directions from the kid with two years of experience. We all know this. This is a combined effort. The Idaho State Police are heavily involved in this as well. And you're going to have a case agent from each department and they're all going to get together, you know, once, maybe twice a day. But the but who is really running the day to day operations and the investigative trajectory on a day to day basis, in my opinion, is the FBI. No, absolutely. And I'll, I could tell even listening to the bosses, the Captain Lanier. Mm -hmm. And and chief, they're inexperienced too. I can hear it in their voice. I can hear it in what they say when they're interviewed. They don't, you know, I don't want to disparage them, but they're. I'll put it this way: they're inexperienced at this. And obviously, how could how could they be experienced at one murder in seven years? And and after with that one, when was the one before that? This isn't something you learn through osmosis. You got to actually do this type of work to get good at it, Phil. Yeah, but Jen just made a great, great point. It's something that I always say. I've said it maybe on a hundred shows already. One detective does not solve the case. It's a team effort from the beginning, from the first phone call, from the first officer that responds. So that detective being assigned to case, the, uh, the case detective is a little bit concerning, two years on the job, whatever it may be. However, like she said, there's 60 FBI agents, plus you have every asset within the FBI working on this case. If they need uh, DNA evidence examined, whatever the case may be, then you also have the state police. I am certain that there are very 
experienced and qualified investigators on this case. Him being the uh, lead investigator, he was the detective assigned. It's not a real concerning thing. I mean, I would like to have had someone with a lot of experience in homicide investigation being a lead investigator, but with all the help that's there and all the people working on this case, I doubt it's going to really play in, you know, not capturing the criminal, the person that's responsible for the quadruple homicide. Professor Mike. Yeah, I have to agree with Phil. And, you know, they he caught the case. He was up. He, he caught the case. And um, and his so his name is on on all the bottom of all the reports. But he's working absolutely hand in hand with the FBI and the Oregon. I'm sorry, the Idaho, keep saying Oregon, the Idaho State Police. And therefore, it isn't as concerning as people who are not in law enforcement may feel. They might look at this and say, well, they're, they're like Mayberry RFD and Barney Fife is in charge. No, it's not. And that's not at all. So um, it doesn't. I, do I wish that person had 25 years in the job, 15 of them in the bureau and 10 of them working uh, homicide? Yeah. But that's not the reality of that police department. Well, you know, I don't think anyone should even be a detective after two years. You know, you should have at least five years on the job before you make detective. And five years isn't a lot is not a lot either. You know, so, I barely knew how to tie my shoes as an FBI agent. I was thrown in, you know, on a substantive squad. I made so many errors, but I always say I've never learned from something I know. It's when you make that mistake and then you don't make it again. You know, that's what the teaching points are. And but, I, you know. But Jen, I use this golden nugget all the time. A thousand attaboys don't equal one ah shit. <laughs> so you heard that one, right? I love that. That's my favorite saying from the NYPD. <laughs> you, you know what, Billy? We we were kind of, uh, I don't know if you want to call it blessed, but my time on the job, I came on in 82. Bill came on right around the same time. And there was a generation before us that was teaching us. And when I went into the Bureau, I went into the Bureau in 1989. There were some great detectives that worked in Homicide Squad and in the Detective Squad where I was. So again, uh, it wasn't like somebody was leading me by the hand. I did have experience and, you know, uh, I had already been in a couple of shootouts and stuff. But when it came to homicide investigation, having good people around you is the key to solving the case. All that glitters. Thank you for the two ninety nine super chat. Any job you need experience. That's true. I don't want someone cutting my hair. My hair is bad enough without an inexperienced barber, right? I want him to have some experience. I want to play this video because this has garnered a lot of interest and a lot of, and what really what it impacts upon was the guy by the food truck who they're seen walking with before they get to the food truck and the infamous Adam who turns out to be the bartender. Obtaining the surveillance footage, Kaylee Gonzalez's father says it shows her and Madison Mogan walking down Main Street in Moscow, Idaho, with a man whom police have confirmed is not a suspect. Their conversation caught on camera. The footage submitted to authorities as part of the investigation. Kaylee's family lawyer telling ABC News they've seen it, and they also don't believe the Adam referenced is a suspect. What were they talking about that night? Were they concerned about anything? Had anybody bothered them? These are all sort of leads that the police will have to look at. Just moments later, with the same man less than a block away, Kaylee and Madison seen on video at a food truck at 1.40 a.m. Police have yet to name a suspect in the case and confirm that they have expanded their search for the occupants of a 2011-2013 white Hyundai Elantra like this, saying they may have critical information about the case.
The car, resembling this grainy image they're now investigating, captured on a gas station security camera taken around 3.45 a.m. the morning of the murders. Gas station employees. Jen, I just wanted to ask you about that. There's there's two things sort of thwarted in one in instance. And the family had that video after the first week. Mm -hmm. So that would have dispelled a lot of rumors right away because they knew the food truck guy. And he was he was public enemy number one. And he's and still is public enemy number one if you read uh, a lot of the social media i can't believe they just cannot let go of him and they just can't even with that video they say see it proves that he was stalking them <laughs> it's so interesting when really in my opinion it disproves it they were friends they walked around and and actually i i posted the complete video from the food truck it's it's over an hour long it's very very long and you can see the girls leave in one direction and you can see the guy in the white hoodie leave in the other direction. You know, he wasn't out there staking them out. He, he really didn't even have opportunity. And that's why I think he, he was cleared early. We all know an alibi is not difficult. Yes, people can lie, but in this day and age, it's not difficult. It doesn't take a lot of time is what I should say. Uh, you, can, you brought up that video, though, Jen, because if you look at that video, there's about 10 minutes of that video where you see the hoodie guy. We'll call him the hoodie guy. He's interacting with people. It's not he was absolutely positively not stalking them. If you look at the clip that's been played on the news, it's maybe a 20 second clip where he's kind of laying in the background. That does look suspicious. But if you look at it in full context, it tells me that he is not being uh, a stalker type or a suspicious type. He, he's, he's engaging with too many people for me to believe that he was stalking them at that point. And I think that's why the police have cleared him. You know, the other thing is, is that they, they've also just come up with another video from some store guy that says, oh, they were talking about another stalker, but he has no concrete information. He's just repeating double, triple and quadruple hearsay. And that's where the danger is in this investigation of all the things Look, wouldn't it have been helpful if we had known about this video instead of everyone, well, you know, social media. Uh, they were all conjecturing that he's the killer. That's right. the killer, you know? Right. And there's a lot of, of that in this investigation because, again, we're not privy to the inside information. And, and rightfully so, a lot of information cannot be released. But it, 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 would, it would help if some of the things... You know, and and the, the term that we get all the time and the media goes crazy over it is when they say, oh, he's cleared. Oh my God! How did you clear him? You know what I mean. He's public enemy number. They, if you, if you use that language, cleared, and they come up with information later on and evidence, they can bring him back in, right? You can always bring someone back in when you have evidence. No one's ever cleared. You know, maybe they use the wrong, uh, the wrong uh, language, but and and no matter what, the media hung on to that. They hung on to it for. They're still hanging on to it. Billy, there was one of the uh, alleged stalkers was someone that met one of the victims in a coffee shop. They tracked that person down. They 
engaged the person, they interviewed them, and it turns out it was like a flirtation thing. He was trying to meet the girl. Now, with that said, if I'm the investigator, I go interview that guy, get that information, I'm also going to run his criminal history. If he's got no criminal history, I'm going to look into him, maybe look at his social media, or, or if, see if he's cooperative, if he agrees to take a DNA swab, things like of that nature. All of those things were probably done, and that's probably how they got to say that that person they don't believe is involved in this case as far as being a stalker. Now, that's not really a stalker. I mean, you go out on the street and, uh, you know, young kids, they flirt with one another. That's not really a stalker. Stalkers, you know, if you look it up, that's someone that's following this person, uh, maybe, uh, you know, tries to engage them and they're rebuffed and they continue to uh, follow. Right, un unwanted advances that uh, they keep pursuing it. Exactly. Uh, exactly. A stalker. Yeah. But, you know, in, in this case, um, Look, they got to look at everything. They have to, they really do. I just want to play a little bit of this recent guy who's saying she had a stalker because you, you guys judge it yourself. We'd both come in um, very happy, very friendly. You know, they always were just such a smile on their face. Just like pretty much the, you would say the light of the world, pretty much. You know, always happy and go lucky. Um, they always came in just chatting. They always came with a group. Like I said, they um, probably I'd say four or five girls at most all the time. They come in together. Um, and I, like I made a, made a joke about it earlier. It was like, uh, you know, Hey, you know, coming together and stuff like that, you know, just, you know, it's nice to see you girls trying to stay safe. One of the most openly says, Oh yeah, we've had a friend of ours be stalked before. So this is kind of why we all travel in a group like this. Then just was like, it, was it Kaylee who said that? Do you remember? No, it was Maddie who actually said that. So Maddie said it. Um, and it was kind of like more mentioning, like motioning to Kaylee too, like who was right next to her. So you could tell that like, they obviously all were trying to keep Kaylee safe, you know, and to be there for her as good friends. And then, yeah, to know that a few weeks later, now I won't see them, you know, anymore or anything like that. So it's so, so crazy. So how long before the murder about was that? Uh, three weeks. Three weeks. Three before. weeks beforehand because I was telling them I hope they had a good Thanksgiving break and everything like that too because I didn't know if I'd see them again. So with a lot of the times with the kids, with uh, the way after the pandemic, some of the kids leave and wave. So I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to see you this weekend or not. Hey, hope you have a great you know, Thanksgiving with your family. And that was the last I saw them. I'm just saying that whole thing is really a, a big nothing burger. Exactly. Uh, you know, that he didn't say a lot. There was really no evidence that they were being stalked. You know, it could be in a conversation, you know, kids coming in late at night when they're, they're drinking and they're just saying, oh, I don't like this guy. Yeah, he's creepy, whatever. But it's really, it wasn't a stalking. Jen? I, I totally agree. That is non-evidentiary. There's nothing you can take out of that, really. Um, it's just kind of, and, and I would love to see the police report of his interview. Either the FD302 or the report of interview from the state police or the local. I want to see if he got that detail. Didn't it feel like to you? And I've seen that like three times. You get, yeah. Yeah, it was three weeks. Yeah, you know, and then one person, I would love to see his actual report of interview because we all know when the police are asking you a question, hopefully making sure to really just precisely remember what you did and said. And then this just seems to kind of go on and on and sort of, oh, yeah, you know, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, if he was interviewed by the police, he would change up. He wouldn't... Uh have real specifics. It didn't seem very specific. I'll, I'll put it that way. Professor Mike. Yeah. The, the lack of specificity uh, and he, you know, saying, well, it was about uh, three weeks ago. Um, uh, you know, and uh, we, we, I see them. Sometimes I see them. I sometimes I don't see them. 
Um, he's well, well-meaning, uh, yeah. you know, well-intentioned, and the reporter is obviously working hard to come up with some sort of, you know, witnesses in, it's in some respect whatsoever, whatever you want to use that term, what a witness might be. But um, I, I think the me- one of the problems with, as you mentioned earlier on, the national media is, seems to be driving a narrative and, um, about stalking, and uh, it might not really be there. And Brian Hinton's a great, a great reporter, and he's probably working, you know, 16 hours a day. But, you know, uh, interviews like this, if a name gets mentioned like Adam, that could be actually very dangerous for Adam. You might get somebody like Chris Como now talks about him as an infamous Adam. And then, <laughs> now, and, I don't know where he got that word from. Right. That was and, like and, unbelievable. He's pretty right. he himself when he talked. Yeah. That's from CNN. <laughs> I will say that I think that's why the police withheld that stretch of conversation. Because Adam is mentioned. So now you just have somebody else in the fold that's, and, and it happened. Right. You know, people were pointing out, oh, it must be Adam. And then you get a whole line of, you know, a whole group of, of slews that are after Adam. So exactly. you know, it's, it's unbelievable the people who have been uh, victimized uh, that probably are not involved in this case. You know, things take on a life of their own, Jen. You know, and you had mentioned with Gabby Petito and the family Red, White, and Bethune. They had that video that basically was a uh, connected where the body of Gabby Petito was because of them. Uh, she was recovered, and it, that would have it may have never been recovered or would have taken a hell of a lot longer. So social media does help, but there's a lot of danger to it also. Like you were discussing that they point out people who they say are suspects all of a sudden, you know, the people better get a bodyguard or get some uh, protection or leave, leave town for a while because social media pointed them out as a suspect, you know, right now it's going on with the surviving victims. You know, they, uh, Dylan and Bethany are also another public enemy one and two. Yes. You know, many people believe there's no way they could sleep through that. You know, they slept till noon and, you know, it's just a matter of, I mean, I wonder how many people have even been in a fight sometimes, you know, how fast it goes, how it's just yeah. so quick. It's, it's dirty. It's vicious, right? It's not a, um, it's not orchestrated like you see on TV, you know, the hand over the mouth, ah! you know, yeah. strike. It's, it's just not like that. And so um, it's, it's just been interesting to listen to the different philosophies of sleuths. You know, it's it's so important to try to uh, stay focused on this. And we as investigators and former investigators, retired law enforcement, are hoping for that smoking gun piece of evidence that points directly to, to the perpetrator in this. And I'm I'm expecting science to solve this case. I really am. And so far it hasn't happened, but it's been 37 days. We all know it's it's not time to panic. It's not time to use the word cold case. It's not time to bring in the National Guard. We know that stuff can take time, and it is taking time. And let the law enforcement experts work this case methodically and do it correctly, and they'll they'll get positive results. Uh, Mike? Yeah. Patience is the the watchword here. You have four homicides in one location in in an area that wasn't – 
you know, an isolated area with so many possible people, strangers, repair people, college friends, relatives, you know, the, del the postal delivery guy, all kinds of people are coming in, in and out of that uh, house over the course of a semester. We know about that the party that they had early on in the semester. Um, and it's gonna it's gonna take a long time to eliminate all the that those extraneous people who just happened to be there weeks earlier and had nothing to do with this homicide. You know, if they've never been fingerprinted and they've never had their DNA taken and put into a database, you have are gonna have a lot of loose ends. And so it's gonna you it's gonna take a lot of painstaking detective work and the pop the National media doesn't have the patience for that. Well, Mike, I always say they used to call detectives gumshoes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got to wear out those gumshoes. <laughs> That's right. You know, you got to walk around and wear them out. And now today, it's most of your work is done on the phone, right? I and think I, with 10,000 tips, there's going to be a lot of shoes worn out. Don't worry. Yeah, me. absolutely. You know, I, I used to laugh when, um, when, we, we were on the job when cell phones just started coming out, like in the in the middle 90s, I think, where everyone had to have a cell phone. And detectives, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to purchase one because it was too expensive. Then they realized, wait a minute, I got guys calling me from the street and saying my perps on 110 in Lexington and it's making me money. So they were like, oh, I got to get a cell phone, you know. Wow, you figured that out, that that, that could do that. You know, people calling you with tips all the time and it, it leads to overtime and it leads to... Uh, you know, better information. Uh, Phil, why don't you go with uh, real quick? Joel Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joel Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at Joe at jmurray-law.com. And Joe is a big supporter of police off the cuff, real crime stories. Absolutely. You know, Jen, I want to, um, and I know you said you could only stay a half hour and I, I, I didn't, I'm sorry. I got carried away. I kept you here. I love your mane of hair. I didn't want that to leave the screen, <laughs> you know? So, but, uh, I've been trying to get you on my show for the longest time. Thank you so much. Uh, for coming on tonight. Uh, I really appreciate your insight and you know how, the FBI works and we're from the other, you know, we're from that dirty, dirty, grimy NYPD, you know, but uh, well, <laughs> I don't mean that. I love the NYPD. And 15 of my years I spent embedded in uh, local units. So including a gang unit for six years. So I know better guys and uh, I really, it's an honor to be here. And I thank you for asking me. And I just, before I sign off here, I did want to say, uh, my sincerest, deepest condolences, especially uh, this time of year, the holidays, Christmas season to these families. And, yeah, um, you know, at the end of the day, it is about these four um, young people who never, ever should have had their lives taken. So just my sincerest condolences. Um, you know, Jen, that's so heartfelt. And it's also we sometimes when we we protect ourselves when we're in law enforcement mm -hmm. to have a, that hard outer shell and sometimes don't allow ourselves to feel the pain of other people, especially if you work homicide all the time, because you got, you can't, you know, you can't go home crying every night, you know, we'll bring that, I'll bring that home with you, you know? So, but we really do feel that these are real people, you know, 
these are not just the, the quadruple homicide victims in Moscow, Idaho. They, they were real people with real families, with real friends, with real loved ones, and they had they had really important lives ahead of them, which has been snuffed out at this point. Absolutely. Schmitty, I love that police off the cuff train doesn't stop at speculation station, keeping it focused. Always great show. Great people. Schmitty, thank you for the five dollars super chat. Thank you for that um, for that wonderful comment. Uh, we love our folks. We love our fans. I know some people don't like me to call them fans, subscribers, friends, Romans, countrymen. I call you whatever you'd like. But we appreciate all you guys coming to watch us. And guys, I, I, I think most of you know, because I see some people leaving right now, Duty Ron is going live with um, Brian Enton from News Nation, and also Ed Wallace will be there. So you've got a, a, a bang-up one, two, three show tonight, and I'm sure they're going to come up with some amazing stuff. And Jen, I want you to promise me that you'll come back. Absolutely. And thank you for having me. And it's such a pleasure to meet you too, gentlemen. Jen, yeah. good to meet you. Thank, Thank you, Jen. And, and I watched the show that you did on uh, Duty Run Show talking about self-defense stuff. And I, I have three college-age daughters. I got them to watch it as well. And thank you very much. That was very, very good. Oh, good. Yeah, I've made my daughter. I have a 21-year-old, and she goes through that class uh, often. So uh, I make her do it over and over again. And she's she's got it down. So Good. Thank Jen, you. that's great. I love the one the guy tried to yoke you from behind. Yes. Yeah. We had that staged for later, but he decided to uh, go off the cuff with me. <laughs> <laughs> so it was interesting. That was not staged, that particular. But that, that was great. I mean, that's definitely a, uh, you know, a martial art move. That's yes. some, you know, trained jujitsu, trained martial arts. You, moving with the person and then turning yeah. around and it, it doesn't have the effect to your back of the neck that it would have to the front of your neck. That was, that was brilliant. That was great. I think all women should take all men too. should take uh, self-defense courses. You know, as we got older on the police department, we just pulled that on nine. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not wrestling with a 16 year old anymore. I used to do that now. Yeah. But when you, out when right you away. When you practice that stuff, it becomes instinct. And I think that's the point. You, you spun around so quick. It was almost like your instinct. So I, I think that was really, really a great show. Everybody should try and catch it. And, uh, yeah, definitely uh, some type of self-defense courses is always good to take. Absolutely. Uh, Professor Mike Geary from um, Albertus Magnus, retired NYPD sergeant. Got a law degree. He's got all kinds of qualifications. And uh, Mike, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, he's he's a, he has no life, so whenever I call him, he's ready. <laughs> Thank you, Billy. Thank you. No problem. I'm always well, there for you, buddy. Phil, it's always like I'm picking up the cannolis in Brooklyn. I'm going here to Staten Island. I'm going. I got to get a I'm going. I can't. I can never get a hold of him. He's got not doesn't have something to do. Well, guys, have, go ahead, Jen. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just saying thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank Everyone you, have Jen. a Merry Christmas. Thank you. And be safe out there. All right. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas, everybody. One episode, just ain't enough.